So we're in Exodus, and and we, when we come to Father's Day, I'm like, well, do I break out or do I just keep going? And so what's happening is there's a lot of stuff that happens in Exodus, and one of these days we're going to talk about all the ten plagues in more detail, but I keep finding things that are before the plagues and after the Exodus, and they're in the, both places. So I want to actually talk about the father of Moses and consider a few things about Moses, his the, the way he was mentored by the dad figures, the father figures in his life, and what we can actually learn from this. Uh, what we discover is Moses and Aaron were three years in age difference, and so there's a lot that we have to, um, we have a lot of questions when we look at Moses and Aaron, because Aaron being the older of the two, and then Moses being the leader of the children of Israel, it creates an interesting scenario. And so, I wanted to read just in uh, starting, I'm just going to go through several places in Exodus. So Exodus chapter 6, in verse 14, we have the family of Moses and Aaron uh, being expounded here. So we're going to go through here. So Exodus 6, verse 14, it says, These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jemin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. So it gives us these names, but then it doesn't really expound on them here. Over in Chronicles, it will list some of them out. But then when it gets to the sons of Levi in verse 16, it says, These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Kohath were 133. So I guess I need to focus in on verse 16 where it says, Levi, the sons of Levi, according to their generations, were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So now we're going with secondborn, Kohath. In verse 18, the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. That's now Amram, the firstborn, down in verse 20. Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, his wife. She bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. And so we see uh, down in verse 26, it says, These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. And these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. All right. We have Moses and Aaron. They're working together. They're bringing the children of Israel out of, the, of Egypt into the promised land. We've talked about the fact that the the others of their generation, the other and the and the men and the women of their time that were in Egypt with them, are are they leave Egypt but they don't make it over to the promised land because of the unbelief that happens in the wilderness. And we'll touch on that again as we as we get go through that. But what we don't always notice is just the, what are the differences between even with Moses and Aaron and how they interact with God and how they respond to God. And so there is, a, there, is a, there is something happening here because you have Miriam, the firstborn, then you have Aaron, and then, there's, then three years later, that's, there's Moses. And so for us, a three-year gap between children is not a very large gap. And so I'm thinking about Amram, and I was just looking around a little bit to see what we can actually find about Amram, and we really don't have much. We see back in Exodus chapter 2, we find something about Amram. It says in Exodus 2, verse 1, a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. And so this is talking about 
this is Amram. She's talking about Moses and talking about his parents. And so it says that they, they had this child and they hid him. Now, the rabbinical traditions, some of the rabbinical writings about this suggest that Amram was actually, as a firstborn in his family, that part of what he was is that he was sort of, he was not, he was a leader of his, the, the, the people there in, in Egypt. And so when it came down to the fact, this is rabbinical, this is, is extra biblical, and we don't have any way of verifying this. It's just as a, is I, 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 I discovered it and thought it was an interesting bit to throw in here because we're trying to understand who's, who is the father of Moses. Well, the, the rabbinical tradition would suggest that perhaps Moses, uh, his father, Amram, that he was a leader of the Egyptians there, or the Israelites there in Egypt. And as he's a leader there, when the edict comes down from the throne, uh, from Pharaoh's house saying, we're gonna kill all the firstborn, that he literally separated from, from his wife, kept her over here, he stayed over here, because he didn't wanna raise any children that they would have to kill. And so after a while, he was, um, through his daughter Miriam, was actually convicted that this was not the way to trust God and came back and then they had the son and then they had to protect the child. So this is, we talked about this earlier, saying what was going on in uh, Amram and Jochebed's mind as they were thinking through this. We don't really know. What we, and we also don't know the full timeline of when, how old Amram was. So I was trying to figure out did Amram survive the Exodus? Did he participate the Exodus? And this is a, it's a good question. And Usher's timeline would say that he died about eight years before the Exodus. Now, we don't ever see a mention of Moses coming back and meeting his dad again. We don't ever see Moses as an adult man interacting with his father. We see him interacting with Aaron. So it would make sense that while Moses was out and about, that his father would have passed away. And so... What we do see is Moses interacting a lot. Uh, well, so just think about this for a minute. I was thinking, you know, today's, in today's world, you'll see someone who is either being very successful or who is really struggling with life. And we say, well, what was his relationship like with his father? And, you know, people who do prison ministry have, have their uh, percentages of how many people who are in prison have, uh, had either t completely absent fathers or they had abusive fathers. And so there's, there's these percentages that people talk about. And we recognize in our culture that fatherhood really matters, that it really makes a difference. And so we're looking at Moses. Well, here's a baby that is born. And even let's say Amram was being very um, intentional saying, yes, we will raise a child. Yes, we will trust God to protect this child. And yet within just a, a very short amount of time, that child is away from his house. So when we have children at my house, I always, I love playing with the little babies. I love interacting with them. I assume that for a couple of years, I am there, yes, I'm protecting them, yes, I'm interacting with them, but they're getting their primary teaching, their primary uh, instruction, the primary caregiving is coming from Stacy. She's pouring into them differently than what I can. Now, there comes a point where they want something more manly. They want something a little different. And so then I expect at that age, I start doing things with them. And especially for the sons, then we start doing things like the camp, tr camping trip next week. You know, it's just me and three of my boys and then a bunch of other fathers and their sons. And it's a good thing. But I, so I'm looking at Amram thinking, well, how much time did Amram get with his son Moses? Did he actually have time with him? 
Or was he just spending time with baby Moses for a little bit and then he was gone out of his house? Then Moses lands in a house. This is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. It says, the child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. Now, later we read that Moses was naming his own sons, but here Pharaoh's daughter is naming the son of Amram. And so I'm thinking in terms of fatherhood, like, do I really want the daughter of the prince of Egypt to name my son? I would rather name my son myself. And so I'm thinking in terms of fatherhood, what the disconnect was there. And then I'm thinking, okay, now let's talk about psychology. And now what does it do to a little boy to be taken out of his father's house and put into this woman's house? And it doesn't mention that she had a husband. It doesn't mention that there was anything involved other than Pharaoh's daughter. And she's naming this boy and she's raising him up. And so from our perspective, he is now being raised by a, a single mother that is not even his biological mother. So if Moses growing up in this scenario where he is absent of his actual birth father and seems to be absent, we don't know what father figures were there. Was Pharaoh playing a father figure to Moses? We don't know. We can imagine and different people play it out different ways, but we have Moses growing up in this house where he is, it is not his father's house. It is, and he is, he is being brought up by Pharaoh's daughter. So I just wanted to think Keep that in mind as we look at the things that happen next, because, you know, Moses grows up, goes out, tries to protect his people, runs away into the wilderness, and immediately in the, you know, several days later, as he's wandering through the wilderness, he's sitting there by a well, and he sees in Midian, and he sees these daughters, these girls coming up with their flocks and their herds, and he helps them, he protects them and helps them, and then they, their dad says, well, bring him in here, and so he comes in there, he meets his future father-in-law. He eventually gets married. He has children, two sons that we read about. And, and so we have this, this time that we look at, it seems to be 40 years that Moses is um, in the wilderness. So if you read, uh, this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And, and so, uh, let's see, there is, oh, here, the verse I was looking for is in Exodus 2, verse 21. It says, then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So Moses is content to live with Jethro. He's content to work with Jethro. He is content, and so he's giving, so he goes from the palaces in Egypt down to the back literally the, the wastelands where there, it's not totally wastelands, but it's, he's in Midian taking care of the flocks and he's just walking around out there and taking care of sheep. And this is what he's doing. Now, if you read some of the, the other books, like uh, some of the, what's the word when a book is, is dubious and we don't actually trust its sources? Because um, there are several people that tried to write up books of Jasher and they would try to write different accounts of Moses. And one of the, the, the really suspect ones that is like not verifiable at all um, decided that in order for Moses to be able to re lead the children of Israel, you would have to, um, he needs some experience. So they made him a captain in the army of the Midianites and gave him great victories of war and other stuff because how else could he possibly lead the children of Israel out? Well, I think 
but he needed more than being a captain in the army. He needed sheep. He needed to understand the stubbornness of people and have that deep patience of trying to move a flock of anything and how long it takes. And he needed that. That was better training than whatever that, that person was thinking. Oh, well, he did this. And he did so I, it's a, and the fact that we have three different books of Jasher helps you understand why they can't all be true. Uh, and, you know, and they contradict each other, so we can't just go with what, just because we find a book that says it's the book of Jasher, it does not necessarily mean that it's actually accurate and that we can depend on it. And so Moses is here in the, in the, in the forest, not the woods, he's in the, not even the forest, he's out in the wilderness, in the fields, in Midian, he's taking care of the sheep. And eventually one day we get to the burning bush, and after the burning bush, and God speaks to him, Moses seems to be ready to go. He seems to be headed out and he's about to go and he goes through this whole conversation. But in Exodus 4, verse 18, it says, Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And so then he loaded everything up and he went. And what is fascinating to me is to think about this relationship. The God, the creator God of the earth is speaking to Moses and is in, appearing to him in the burning bush and is speaking to him and says, go to Egypt. And he has this whole conversation where it seems that he's going to go to Egypt. And then before he goes, he goes to his father-in-law and says, um, so I'd like to go to Egypt. And it is a, seems to be a position of respect and honor that Jethro has in Moses' life. And so now, at this point, I'm thinking of the men. We have Moses' actual dad, his father, Amram, who we don't know how much time he actually had with him. Then we have whoever is in Pharaoh's court. We don't know who the instructors and tutors are there. But then for 40 years, we have... Moses in the wilderness with Jethro. And we see later, so now he leaves to go to Egypt. We don't get all the, in, the back and forth between Moses and Jethro because at some point Moses drops off his wife and children back with Jethro while he's leading the children of Israel on. And then eventually in uh, Exodus 18, we have Jethro bringing Moses' wife and children back to him again. So now this is, so just for the timeline of where we are, we've already had, you know, the, the Red Sea crossing happens. There was the, there were the bitter waters that were made sweet. There was the manna uh, made sweet. There was manna bread from heaven. There was manna from heaven coming. Um, there was the water from the rock. There was a battle with the Amalekites that uh, Moses, the victory over the Amalekites happened. And after all of these things has happened, so now we have for sure Moses having a successful career, you would say, as leading the children of Israel. He's been in front of Pharaoh's court. He is used to hearing from God, speaking to man. He brings everyone out through the Red Sea. He's over here. He's had a lot of success in this mission of his. And at this point, Jethro comes. And so we'll, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 18. And 
so first of all, I, I don't want to dig too deep into all of the pieces of this, but in verse 7, so it's Exodus 18, verse 7, it says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And so there is a, there's, this is a very quick, short verse, but they come, they kiss each other, they ask each other about their well-being, and then they go into the tent, and they're, so it seems to me to signify a relationship of mutual respect, of love, and, and they're, they're together. And so Jethro, throughout chapter 18, is asking questions of how, what he's doing and how he's going, what God has done. And it brings us to the point, um, so in Genesis, um, in Exodus 18, in verse 9, it says, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So Jethro recognizes that what was happening in Egypt with the, with the various plagues and stuff, that that was, in a, that was a direct evidence and a proof that the Lord, of, the Lord God, the creator God, was more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. And he recognizes that, and he says this. And so he says, see, I see it here in what you're saying. So Jethro is rejoicing. The part that surprised me when I read through this in the interaction is in verse 12. It says, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so when I read that, what I'm seeing is that we have Jethro, who has before been identified as the priest of Midian, but now he's with the people of God. He's hearing from his son-in-law what all God has done. And he says, wow, God truly is the Lord. And then he brings an offering. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel come with Jethro as Jethro brings this offering to the Lord God. And they all then feast together with him. And so it is both a place of honor and it's just a, it's an interesting thing because Aaron himself is going to be the, the head of the priesthood and yet Aaron is there and Jethro is the one doing the offering. And so the, the priest of Midian, who is also a descendant of Abraham, we have him here and he is offering on an altar to the God of Moses, the God of Levi, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. And the others, they're okay with this. They're all around here. And so this is, this is a fascinating moment to think about. The, now, true, the Levitical priesthood hasn't been fully put in place yet. And, but the but he's seeing this. And so to me, as I read that, I felt like this was both a place of mutual respect and honor that he would worship his God with him. And, and, you know, I was trying to think in today's terms how we would do this. And it was sort of like um, if we were, you know, if my father-in-law comes and preaches in my pulpit, there is a certain level of respect that we have to have for each other. And he has to be willing to agree that what we're doing here is okay. And so there's a certain level of, and so it's kind of like that, but I feel like 
on a, in some ways it's even deeper. And so, because when it says, I mean, I wish it would expound it a little bit more. Exodus 18, verse 12, when it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, other sacrifices to offer to God. I would like to know just a little bit more exactly. Like, did they build an altar? What happened? Did they use, did Moses already have an altar? What was going on? And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so, then it continues on with the story. It says, on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So in this particular account, we now have Moses hearing all the issues that the great mass of, Egypt, of the Israelites are having, and Jethro finally says, what, what are you doing? Like, I'm seeing you sitting over there. I'm seeing all these people coming up in front of you. What are you doing? What's going on? And Moses explains as well, you know, there's issues. And because I go and hear from the Lord, then they come bring their issues to me and I help them, I make decisions for them and help them and I judge rightly between one person and the next. And Jethro looks at him and looks at all the people and says, Moses, it's not good for you or for them. You're going to wear each other out trying to do this. They're going to have to stand in line for so long and they're going to stop even wanting justice. And so he says, it's not good for you. And so what you should do is appoint your elders and let the elders take care of the issues and only bring to you the ones that come to work themselves all the way up. So let them start with their, their family units and then come up to, you know, and, and so he gives them this instruction and Moses says, that's a good idea and actually does it. So Moses takes this, what Jethro gives him. It says in verse 24, so Exodus 18, verse 24. Well, let's actually back up because it says in... Um, this is what Jethro tells him, verse 19, Exodus 18, verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will, it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So, Verse 24, Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went to his own land. And so Jethro at this point disappears from the narrative, and we don't see him again in the narrative. And so we've only seen him briefly a few times, but we see him enough to understand that Moses spent a lot of time with Jethro. Moses spent a lot of time interacting with his father-in-law, and both before and then it seems like here, he really respected him. They spent some days together. And so there is, as I'm thinking about Moses and what is helping him to then lead, because if you back up a bit, when Moses first comes out of the palace and he goes out and he tries to, to protect the Israelites, 
you know, he kills that Egyptian and the next day he comes and finds two Israelites fighting. He's like, hey, what's this going on? And the moment he discovers that, that his murder has been uncovered, he flees and he runs. And as he's, he's, he's running, this is a, um, in the rabbinical writings, there is suggestion that there were prophecies made about Moses around his birth time. And so if this is true, uh, Miriam would have been part of this. Miriam would have known. Amram, his parents would have known. And so if this is true, they might have been trying to communicate with him from the time he was tiny or whatever. I don't know how much interaction they had, but he might have known because we've talked about this. Did Moses know that God had chosen him for something? Because he seems to have known because he went out to see his brothers, to, went out to see the Hebrews. And while he was out there, he tried to bring justice to them. He seems to have known that he had a calling. And so as he's out there, he does things and it doesn't work. And so now he's running. And as he's running away and he ends up in, in, in Midian, he is quite content then to stay with his father-in-law. And so in our study of what, what is the, um, just, you know, now in our day and age, we use words like father wound and all of, you know, we have to forgive our dads. And, and we have all of these things that we talk about because we know there's a great impact and so for myself, I can tell you things that my dad did that greatly were, were huge catalysts for what God was doing in my life. And so this is an important process to think through. And I'll tell you why I'm, I'm going down this trail a little bit. We get to a spot later where Aaron is briefly left in charge of all the children of Israel. And in that moment, they say, we're, we're kind of sick of this Moses and God thing. Why don't we just make us a calf? And, and, and he just does it. And you think, why didn't he say, but no. Like, what was it about Aaron that when the people wanted something, he felt compelled to give it to them? And so it's almost just looking at him from the way we interact. You know, there are, there are times, and I think of someone who comes up and and, and feels like that their dad never provided for them the things they needed. And so anytime their child asks for anything, they remember that their dad never provided anything. And so they say, yes, 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 yes. And they'll just say yes, no matter what the child wants. And so they will agree and affirm their child into destruction because they're not okay, because they felt like they were lacking something. And so they don't have a healthy place to say no. And so they feel as if they would say no, that that would ruin their, their, uh, their, their children would always then be hurt by them in the same way that they felt hurt and abandoned by their dad. And so the way your father responds to you, the way you respond to your father can really impact that. And so it seems that potentially Aaron was in that position where when the people came, he had no emotional ground to stand on the moral ground that he could have claimed. To say, no, we serve the God that brought us out through the Red Sea. We're not going to make a calf. What are y'all thinking? No. And Aaron could have spoken up and told them no. And the story would have run differently. The account would have turned out different. But he didn't say that. He didn't, it doesn't even seem that he tried very hard. He just capitulated and said, okay, whatever you want. And then later, when Moses says, what were, I mean, in effect, what were you thinking? Aaron is kind of like, and, and I have said these things myself and I've heard other people say them. Well, it kind of just happened all of a sudden. Like it happened so fast. I don't even really know. It was kind of like I just threw the gold in and the calf came out. Like to him, he's, he's thinking in his mind that 
from the time that they asked, it was like time went into a warp zone of something and he just did this thing. And later he's looking back going, why did I do that? I, I, I wish I hadn't done that. And so he kind of wants to plead temporary insanity and say, I don't know what happened. It just, I threw it in and poof, there was a golden calf, you know? And so you see that there's something happening. And so my thought as I was considering these two men who were three years apart from each other, but never spent any time in each other's houses growing up. They grew up, I mean, other than when Moses was a baby and very small, they really didn't spend, they were not mentored to be men by the same man. And so whatever Amram did or didn't do for Aaron, I don't know, but I have questions. I'm wondering if Amram being that long in Egypt under a Pharaoh that was that hard, even though God had miraculously saved their son Moses, if somehow, because I think like if God saves my son, but then puts him in Pharaoh's daughter's house, that is, that feels very much like a defeat to me as a dad, because why wouldn't God let me raise my son? So I'm, this is a lot of conjecture this morning, and I totally I understand that, but I wanted, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to think about these things, and I'm having to put myself in some of this, and knowing also that I come from a Western mindset, and they were in a completely different mindset, but that is one of the things I want to talk about, is the mindset of someone who has been in captivity, of someone who knows that there are certain things that he cannot do, no matter how much he wants to, because there is some authority in the land that will slap him down immediately. Is it possible that Amram had that defeatist mindset where he didn't think that he himself could actually serve God in that way. He was limited to what he could do. That's a question I have. Is that where Amram was? And is that why God said, well, let's bring Moses out of there. So he brings him into a different house. But then he spends his time in that house and he he grows up thinking, well, I can do what I want to do but he can't actually do what he wants to do. He also is responsible to the laws of God. And so when he just does what he wants to do and it turns out wrong, Moses runs and then God puts him in Jethro's house. And this is where I'm fascinated by these 40 years, the fact that he's content to live with Jethro and that he's content to be there, that he works for him, that 40 years later, it doesn't say that he was now on a neighboring ranch and had his own sheep. No, he's still taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. So he has not had great ambitions to go do something else. He is content to be here. And so when you're taking care of your father-in-law's sheep, that means every time it's time for shearing, every time it's the birthing times, all of the times and the seasons, and when the sheep are moving from here to there, he is constantly interacting with the owner of the sheep. And so there is something happening, and I believe for Moses, there was a mentoring going on from Jethro that actually impacted him, so that the man that walked back to Egypt, even though he still was afraid that he couldn't speak, and that he was in a humbling place for himself, I think that was a different man, and it wasn't just because of the burning bush, it was also because of the years and years and years he'd spent with the sheep and the years he'd spent with Jethro. And so what I see the difference between Moses and Aaron is one of the big differences was that Moses had spent time with a free man who lived in his own country, who served his God. And Aaron had only lived with those who were servants of, an, of, a, of a hostile nation. He had not lived with freedom. He had not seen it. He had not been in a place where they could freely worship their God. 
And so this is a big deal when you think about how do we worship God? And now they come out and Aaron is going to be in charge and responsible for the offerings that happen. But Moses is getting the, the information and handing it off to Aaron saying, here's what we're going to need to do. And so to me, reading through this, I think it is fair for us to say that there is a, there's a certain level of mentoring that Moses has been receiving because we see it happen as soon as Jethro shows up. They're interacting, they're talking. And then Moses is doing something and Jethro says, tell me what you're doing. And Moses explains it and Jethro says, you know, there is a better way. And so I'm thinking how many times in those 40 years was Moses doing something and Jethro shows up and says, what are you doing, Moses? And Moses says, well, I'm doing this. And, and Jethro says, there, there is a better way. And this relationship has been established where Moses knows that Jethro is not just making stuff up, but he actually has wisdom and it seems to come from God. And so when in the wilderness, when Moses is responsible for all of these Israelites that are there and he's trying to hear from God and keep everything moving and Jethro says, there's a better way, Moses says, okay, tell me. And he listens and he applies it and he does it. And he respects the words of his father-in-law. If his father-in-law had always been mean to him or railed at him or given him bad counsel, Moses wouldn't be looking, wouldn't be listening to what he has to say. We'd be kind of like, okay, here, I'll take my wife. Why don't you not even come in the camp? Why don't you just just go away again uh, before you come in here and see what's going on? No, he brings him in. There is a respect there that I think is important to note and that the impact that Jethro has on all the Israelites from then on out with the way the structure of their communities and, the, and how it's working from there on out, how they become a self-governing place. Uh, and so even later when we get to the times of the judges, what's happening is when there are issues that they can't solve in their local places, they're always looking, well, where's that one person? And so they have Gideon, they have uh, Deborah at one point, they have all these different people who are judges of Israel. And it's not that those judges are going around telling everyone everything. They're taking care of themselves in their little villages and towns. But every so often, there's an issue that is so big that they would have taken it to Moses. But, you know, Moses is long dead. So they take it to whoever the judge is in the land. And they say, hey, here's our issue. And that's the kind of the judging that was happening. It wasn't that Deborah and the other judges were having to judge every single little issue that came along they were taking the ones that rose through the top. And there was a structure that was built into the Israelites that they continued on with, you will see the elders showing up again and again and again in the accounts here and how they are structured. And so it might at times kind of break down and not be as official, but there's an understanding that when we have a problem here, we're going to look, well, who are our elders in this area? Okay, now how can we solve this? And if we have problems, then we have to find another judge. And so I think that the impact that Jethro has on the Israelites is, is huge. And it wasn't just that he showed up one day and had this brilliant idea and gave it to them, but there had been a relationship between Moses and Jethro. And so I, I was thinking in terms of us and, and fathers and Father's Day today, and that we have men in our lives who, and so let's just look at the men that are here. Um, we have the actual biological father, and we don't know enough about Amram to know how much impact he actually had on Moses. He might have had a lot more than we know. Potentially very little. We don't know his faith level. We don't know if he could have communicated that to Moses at all. All right. 
Then we have, we don't know what the men, who the men were in Pharaoh's daughter's house. We don't know if Pharaoh himself kind of adopted Moses as his little grandson and poured into him the Egyptian ways and means of doing things. We don't know that. It's possible. But we do know that he spent 40 years with Jethro and that whenever we see them come together, we see Moses asking, honoring, respecting. And so I think for many of us, this is what we'll see is we have our biological father and he might or might not be a good mentor to us. We have other men in our life who have a lot of authority and they may or may not be a good mentor to us. Um, In Moses' case, then he has his father-in-law who turns into a good mentor. But we have this, we all have these opportunities where we have that dad, that man that is mentoring us, that is teaching us, that is leading us. And sometimes it's for a short amount of time. Sometimes it's a long amount of time. Sometimes it feels very um, sacred and meaningful. And other times it just is like taking care of sheep. It's not that doesn't seem that deep or meaningful, but the relationships are there. And so it is on Father's Day that we think about who are the men who really mentored us in this way, and that is how we, ex- we express our gratefulness is to men who took the time to be worthy of, of fatherhood. There are always men, it seems, that are w- looking to have the honor and the respect of father, but are not willing to actually father someone's heart. And so even in the, you know, in, within Christianity today, you'll see people who are um, leaders within their denominations and stuff, and at some point things will collapse and they will like lose everything, but for a while they were controlling a lot of people. And part of what's happening is there are many, many of us as young people growing up who are still looking for that father figure. We're still looking for who's going to father me. And the, the ultimate answer, of course, is that God himself is to be our father. But we need a human being. We really want that human touch. And so when someone comes along and says, well, I will act like a father to you, we will just say, okay, and we'll jump right in. But if their intentions are wrong, where they're doing it for themselves and are not truly mentoring and reaching out, it can turn into what we would call a cult after a while. Well, you have someone pretending to be the father that people need, but only trying to meet his own needs and wanting to control and manipulate, and is not truly doing the work of a father well. And so it is good for us to recognize when we find those people that are doing it well, who who have been like a father to us. And, and I think of, of Paul writing and saying, you know, there's a lot of apostles or teachers or leaders or evangelists or other people out there, but you don't have very many fathers. And I was like a father to you. And I think of that, that he was feeling a little bit distanced from the people that he was reaching out to. And I think it's important for us to go ahead and connect back to those who have done it well, even if it's just a little bit that we say thank you for being a father to me in this way. And that we honor that and that we respect that. And I, Jethro and Moses, I think is a good example of this, of, of seeing it play out. So I wanted to encourage us on Father's Day to, of course, examine as men, to examine our own lives and say, well, am I trying to be a dad? Like, 
I, I can't tell you the exact percentage, but there's a whole bunch of rules that happen at our house and discipline that happens at our house is because I don't like something. And so like at our house, um, I don't like when children screech. And so we've worked with every one of them because every child screeches. And so we work with them because I don't like that. And so I work hard to get the screech out of my children. And it's hard work. At the end of the day, does it help them? Sure, it helps them. It really helps me. And so there's a certain level of the, what we do as dads that we're just saying, um, you're in my house and you're my people. And so I need you to do things so that I am not made too uncomfortable. So there is a certain level of that. So I don't want to dis, discount that entirely because I think that is one way that God actually set us up to where the things that I really care about are things that my children will learn to care about. Hopefully, my desires and my thing, uh, everything about me is being sanctified and made more like Christ so that when I impart that desire on down to them, that they're getting, that it is helping them on to godliness, right? But not, I know that it isn't always the case. And so, you know, uh, because really, when it comes to food preferences, I mean, that's a big stretch to take our food preferences and say, well, my food preferences are completely sanctified. Like there, there's just too, there's a huge part of it there that's just, it's us. I like this. I don't like that. And so chances are my boys are going to grow up with certain things that they will be like, no, I want it this way. I don't want it that way. And the only reason is because all of our growing up years, I always insisted I really don't prefer it that way. And so like if Stacy cooks something that is outside of my preferences, I will be like, well, you know, I'm trying really hard to be grateful right now. Thank you. Thank you. But in the future, could we stick with beef, you know, and so, or, or whatever the issue is. And so, so it's interesting to watch how in the 11 years of our marriage, so much of what we do really comes down to preferences that we both can live with. And so if it's only my preference, then if she loves me very much, she will help that happen. If it's only her preferences, vice versa. But there's some things that when it fits us, and so we will work together as a team and it impacts our children. So there's a certain level of that. But there's also a, a level of where I will get up in the morning and I will see what's happening in my family and I will have to, I have to choose to die to myself, to die to the flesh in order to take good care of my sons and my daughter. And I have to be willing to do things that I don't want to do in order to give them the best that, that what is right and good from God for them. And so there is a certain level of my own preferences, but there's also a certain level of me being willing to sacrifice. And you will really feel this when you're raising infants and there's that season where you don't sleep much and then, or, or and there's other things, you know. And so you have these times where, where you have to be willing to sacrifice and that's good. Most dads I know have sacrificed in some areas and have their own preferences in others. And, I, I'm, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have our preferences. I just think we need to make, ask the question, are my preferences being sanctified? Am I becoming more like Christ? And therefore my preferences are, you know, they, they reap the benefit of my sanctification. And so, but, it, but, it's, a, but it's, a, it's a balance that we have as dads of how much do I spend time focusing and trying to care for this, this little group of people that God has given me versus fulfilling the calling that God has given me to do. 
And so, you know, in, in my case, um, that calling means that my children have to do things they would rather not do. Like sitting um, and, you know, if we're just going to church, that's fine. But when we start doing all these, uh, any other meetings or other stuff, suddenly they're going to church a lot more than normal folk. And they have to deal with that. They have to deal with the sitting and listening. And a lot of times they're listening to me. And honestly, they would rather go swimming with me or go play disc golf than just hear me talk. And so, you know, by the time they're going to be 10 or 12 years old, they'll have heard hours and hours and hours of me talking. And like at that point, if, if, Anything I say from the pulpit, if God actually uses that in their life, it's going to be a miracle because they have been completely inoculated against my voice and my ideas and my thoughts. And so I know that. And that is also why as a, as a congregation, it's good to, to share who speaks at different times so that our children can hear other people, right? <laughs> and so I think about all of these things when it comes to fathering. And I think it's important that we, as dads, think about this, um, even as our children move on and grow up and leave, because there's that time, like with Jethro, where his grown daughter is back at his house for a season, and then he's interacting with his father, with his son-in-law, and he's still playing that role, and he's still interacting. And so that really, that interaction doesn't have to be from a physical father even. It can just be from one believer to another. We need each other to be able to share things back and forth. But within the world of fathers in the family, this is a very, it's a good thing to think about the impact that we can have. And so when I first started writing down these notes, I had just written down on my sheet, I, says, I just wrote down the fathers of Moses. And I was trying to figure out who all I would get point and say, this was somewhat of a father figure. This was somewhat of a father figure. And after looking at it all, I determined that Amram had a huge impact. And this is true for every one of us. Our biological dad has a huge impact on us because we exist and whether we say that he was irresponsible, whether we say whatever we want to say, we exist because of him. And we're still alive. We, and there was a, th this is, I wasn't gonna share this, but it just is coming back in my mind again. Uh, we went to the highest point in Pennsylvania because uh, Stacy has the bucket list of going to the highest point in every state. So as we're going there, driving up to that spot, we, we stop at a pole out and we don't see the rocks, but they're through the woods over this way. There's a place and they have, it's the, um, Brahm rocks or Brahmin rocks somewhere. It's, it's af named after someone else. And so we read this, the history behind the rocks. Well, so this was the history behind these rocks. There was a dad, and the, the, the plaque said, a very temperamental man, who was out looking for livestock with his two sons. And he got mad at his second son because he was going too slow and slowing them down. So he hit him with a stick and killed him. And so he left his dead son at these rocks, went and found the rest of his livestock, brings them back, then goes back to find his son, can't find the body of the son anymore. They still don't know what happened to him. And so forever since then, 18, whenever this was, pre-Civil War era, these rocks have been named after this man who lost his temper and killed his son. And I just think, like, and then his other son had to, like, testify against him, and then he's is sent off to prison for second degree murder or something. Anyhow, I think about that. Here's the dad going, well, you're slowing us down and he's getting angry about it and he just kills his son on the spot. Like, I'm sure he wasn't planning to. He was not premeditated he was going to kill his son. 
It was an accident, but it was a lack of sanctification on the Father's behalf. And I think that is often what we're talking about when we look at the, the wounds of the fathers, is it's not that this, the dads are going maliciously, I'm going to hurt my kid, but there is a certain level of, of our flesh acting out hurts our children. And we, in his case, he obviously knew that he'd hurt his son, but in our case, we don't always know how we've hurt someone else. And so that is why we, um, that is why we talk about counseling and why we talk about having to forgive our dads is because we all carry a certain level of wounding from our dads unintentionally. And, and, and what can happen, and this is the part that I wanted to, uh, sum, uh, to end with today, what can happen is we can focus on the way someone has hurt us. We can focus and say, this is how they failed. We can focus on all of that. Or we can look at and say, well, but look at this. At a time in Egypt when it was very, very, well, it was, it was very not safe to have a son. Amram had a son. And he took a stand and he had a son. And so Moses, talking to him, well, Moses, you need to be grateful that your, son, that your dad took this stand. That was worth something. And so even though you weren't raised by your dad, even though you didn't get to work with your dad, you need to be grateful for your dad. So that's what we're saying to him, right? But then we also say, Moses, be grateful for Jethro because you got to spend all that time with a man in the wilderness, a man who loved God, a man who took care of his family, a man that you were able to learn from, a man that was cared enough about you to speak into your life. And we need to honor that man as well. And so in our lives today, we, that's the opportunity we get is to both honor our dads and potentially they're the same person. Our spiritual mentor and our biological father might be the same person, but they might not be. And so it's a good, a good time to remember that. And it's a good place for us um, to look at Moses and say, he was very effective in his ministry. How much of that was the influence of Jethro? We don't know, but it's a good question for us to ask and consider. And then if we see ourselves being successful in something, we say, is there someone that really encouraged and spoke into this part of my life? Could I go back and thank them for that? And that's what Father's Day is for, is to go back and say, thank you, because of something, whether it's learning how to change the oil or whatever it is, that's why we have Father's Day. And then we have the issue at times where our fathers have passed on and we can't actually go back and say thank you, but we can still honor them by sharing with others what our dads shared with us or what we learned from them. And that it's, that it's still a place of honor. And when it comes to honoring our parents, it's not so much that we honor our parents and then they bless us, they might bless us. But for whatever reason, in the economy of the kingdom, when we honor our parents, God blesses us. It's part of what he has built into his law. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. When we honor our parents, God honors us and blesses us. So that's what Father's Day is for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you that even looking at Moses and Aaron, at the, the, the differences of the men that were in their lives, Lord, it gives us something to talk about and something to think about. And thank you for the dads in our life. Lord, I thank you for the men who have mentored me. I thank you for my, my actual father. I thank you for the men in this fellowship who have loved on their children and have mentored their own children as well as mentoring other people. 
And Lord, we, we thank you for dads. We thank you, Lord, that this was your idea, really, to have a father and a mother in a home, and that this is what you wanted. And so, thank you, Lord. We submit ourselves to you. We ask that uh, you be glorified in all of our relationships, and I ask that you bless each of the dads here, that you'd help us to continue walking in a way that would be a blessing to our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.